who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Hi, Kids Out Brigade. It's me, Anne. I wanted to let you know about a fundraiser that I'm doing all this month, the month of April 2023. Trans rights are under attack seemingly everywhere particularly in the United States that's been in the news lately, but it's an issue all over the place. And I, as a person, and this podcast as an entity, we stand with all trans people everywhere. And so to raise some money, I'm running this fundraiser all month called Tits Out for Trans Rights. So you can get all the details if you go to vulgarhistory.com slash donate. That's vulgarhistory.com slash donate. It's two-pronged, the fundraiser. So first of all, I'm raising money for the Trevor Project, which is an American organization that supports LGBTQ plus people. And then also I've got a new item in the merch store, which is an item featuring trans icon, the Chevalier Dayon, who I talked about in an episode last season with guest host Maya Dean. And all the proceeds from sales of the Chevalier Dayon Merchandise this month is going to be donated to Point of Pride, which is another American organization that helps support trans people. If there's another organization that you're planning to support this month anyway, somewhere close to home, something that is meaningful to you that supports trans people, there's a form also on my website where you can just list what the donation was and who you gave the money to. So at the end of the month, I can give a grand total of how much the Tits Out Brigade was able to raise as part of this fundraiser. Also, for everybody who wants to, I will give you a shout out to all the people who donate in a later episode of Vulgar History. So again, you can get all the details of this fundraiser at vulgarhistory.com slash donate. Tits out for trans rights. Hello, welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is a special episode. I'm talking with author Max Wallace about a book that 
when I first saw it listed, I was just like, what? When I saw the the name of the title and the subtitle, and then I looked into it and I was just like, oh, I, first of all, I need to read this book. And second of all, I hope I can talk to this author on the podcast and both came true. So he's written a biography of Helen Keller. It's called After the Miracle, The Political Crusades of Helen Keller. And it is such a fascinating read. I thought, I thought I knew the deal with Helen Keller. Let me talk about this a bit in the the interview that you're about to hear. And so I just want to go over sort of the widely known, the widely known saga of Helen Keller, which is that she was uh, a little girl in Alabama. When she was 19 months old, she contracted an illness that ended up making her deaf blind. So she couldn't see, she couldn't hear. And then sort of the narrative is that she was just this kind of feral child and nobody could get through to her until a woman named Annie Sullivan came to teach her. And then the really big aha moment, famously recounted in Helen Keller's own autobiography, and then later in the play and the movie, The Miracle Worker. There's a moment when Helen Keller was six years old. And so Annie Sullivan had been spelling out letters in her hand, and it just didn't seem like Helen was really connecting the, the letters being spelled out with the objects that she was being shown. There is a moment where Annie Sullivan held one of Helen Keller's hands under water from a water pump and spelled out water on Helen Keller's palm. And then this was the the moment where it just seemed like Helen Keller would like that, that clicked for her, like, oh, this means this, this means this. And so a lot of the story of Helen Keller has been interpreted as sort of like Annie Sullivan, like it's called the miracle worker. It's Annie Sullivan is the miracle worker. Like it was a miracle that she taught Helen how to read and write and communicate. And as this book explains, Helen herself, I don't know, with a different teacher, similar or different things might have happened. But the person that Helen Keller was, like, thank goodness that we're able to to know what she was like, because it turns out, as much as she is still remembered today as this kind of saintly advocate for the blind and for the deaf, she was, in fact, a radical activist and advocate for her whole life. And anyway, so Max Wallace is here with me, too to talk about the legacy of Helen Keller and how he's revisited it in this book. So I hope you enjoy this chat between me and Max Wallace. Okay, welcome, Max Wallace. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book, After the Miracle, The Political Crusades of Helen Keller. So as a first question, can I ask you, before you were working on this book, what was your understanding of Helen Keller? Well, like most people, you know, I I read the story of my life. I think I was forced to read the story of my life in grade school. And so, again, like most people, my image of Helen Keller was this six-year-old blind girl, deaf blind girl at the water pump in Alabama. And you know, that's all they ever told us about Helen Keller. And then, you know, imagine my surprise years later, I, I'm an historian and I was doing a book about uh, Nazi Germany, about the Third Reich, Charles Lindbergh's uh, Nazi affiliations. And I come across Helen Keller, uh, you know, raising her voice against Hitler, against the rise of Nazism. And then I did another Holocaust book a few years later, and I find that Hitler is burning her books and banning other books and censoring other books. And, you know, they never told, they never told us about that side of Helen Keller, that's for sure. So I was very, very intrigued. And was that your 
where your decision to make this book came from, just sort of figuring out like what on earth was, <laughs> what's she doing in this Holocaust story? Yeah, oh, exactly. And then I, I started looking into her and I was, I was captivated by this incredible figure that, you know, no, very few people know this other side of her. Her, you know, this all happened. Her legacy was forged when she was six years old, but she lived till 88. She lived till 1968. And nobody ever talks about her incredible adult life. And, and you know, the, the, other, the other part was kind of boring. You know, and there's a term for it now, inspiration porn. Disability advocates call it the, you know, this uplifting story that's designed to make non-disabled people feel uplifted and inspired. And and that never really interested me. My 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 aunt was blind, so I I did know that that you know the obstacles that people with disabilities go through to some extent, right? Just just seeing the obstacles that my aunt faced, but I was never really inspired by that story of Helen Keller at the water pump. And, you know, but, but, but when I discovered this side of her, I was very inspired. Honestly, when I came across your book, just in a list of, you know, upcoming books, even just the title, The Political Crusades of Helen Keller, and I thought, the what now? Because I had the exact same understanding. She was kind of a deafblind girl who learned how to communicate, and I just never knew or thought to look into what did she do after that. And so it was incredible, all the, everything you have in here. So can you... You know, people should read the book to get the whole story, but some highlights of, of what she did after after <laughs> age six. Well, she, you know, part of the original story that I guess people also knew was that she was the first um, deafblind person to graduate from university. She goes to Radcliffe. She, she graduates uh, summa cum laude. And, you know, that, w- that was an impressive accomplishment for, for somebody with um, multiple disabilities. Radcliffe, uh, didn't exactly go out of their way to accommodate her. She had to fight every single step of the way. But this is all part of the, a large part of the Helen Keller myth is uh, the the story of Annie Sullivan, her teacher. And, you know, that I I think probably more people now know the story from uh, watching The Miracle Worker, the 1962 movie with Anne Bancroft. And The Miracle Worker really casts uh, Annie Sullivan as the hero. And Helen Keller becomes a secondary character in her own story. So, you know, it's all part of that, uh, the savior narrative, right? About the miraculous uh, person who rescues the, the marginalized person. And, and, and we're supposed to celebrate this. And I guess people did for decades. But, you know, once again, it, it completely sweeps Helen Keller's incredible life under the rug. Well, and you mentioned in the book, just something I hadn't considered, but the movie version of The Miracle Worker. So the actress playing Annie Sullivan was nominated for Best Lead Actress. And then the actress playing Helen Keller was Supporting Actress, which really clearly, it was just seeing the way that he wrote it in the book, I'm like, oh yeah, that that movie is about Annie Sullivan, heroic teacher. And Helen Keller is just kind of there. And, you know, that, and that movie ends, you know, when she's six years old in Alabama. And so, yeah, this is the 1880s. So she's born into, she's born in the, um, Postbellum South. Her her grandparents were uh, slave owners. They lived on the plantation, and it turns out this has never been revealed. But her father, Arthur Keller, was the first man in Alabama to take the obligations of the Klan. So in in uh, in the eighteen sixties, and and so this is the the upbringing that she had, and 
later on in, in 1916, she sends shockwaves through the South by issuing a fi- she gives a financial donation to the NAACP, the fledgling NAACP, which had just been formed a couple years earlier. And she sends a letter talking about how she's ashamed in her soul to be from the South because of the tears of the oppressed and <laughs> this incredible broadside against Jim Crow and anti-Black racism. And needless to say, this was not well received among white people in the South, especially her family. So there's, you know, intense pressure on her to, to take it back and backtrack. And this is sort of a constant theme throughout her life. Uh, her employer, Annie Sullivan, her parents, or she would, she would, you know, take these very radical positions all through her life. And, and then there will be intense pressure for her to, you know, you're jeopardizing uh, the welfare of the blind community. You're jeopardizing your reputation. Uh, there was a, a, a very concerted effort to cast her as a secular saint. So even when they did talk about her uh, adult life, it was always supposed to be as a, a shining symbol of overcoming adversity, resilience, etc. So... Um, comes as a shock to all Americans. In 1912, she suddenly announces that she's joined the Socialist Party of America. And not only that, but she's no garden variety moderate socialist who believes in achieving socialism at the ballot box. She starts to talk about revolution. And and the only way to transform society is through a full-scale revolution. And part of this, the epiphany, this is what I discovered that you know the famous epiphany with Helen Keller is Annie Sullivan runs her uh, hand under water over her hand under the water pump in in Alabama when she's six. But the real epiphany that I discovered is when Helen Keller uh, discovered that the majority of blindness and disability in America is caused by workplace accidents resulting from a lack of worker safety. So this is an epiphany for her. And she starts to link disability with capitalism. And she travels the country talking about the, the commercial, uh, the, the greed of commercial society. And, you know, people are expecting to hear her, her talk about her inspirational story. And she's indicting capitalism. So needless to say, this is not well received by the media, by the public. The media starts to this ableist narrative uh, attaches to her where she must have been manipulated by those around her, though the wonderful blind girl certainly could never have come up with this uh, on her own. So Annie Sullivan gets blamed. And ironically, Annie Sullivan was very conservative. Um, You know, uh, Helen Keller is a staunch feminist. She becomes a militant suffragette. And Annie Sullivan doesn't believe in socialism. She doesn't believe in suffragism. She doesn't think the women women are capable of exercising the vote. While Helen Keller's telling the New York Times that she's a militant suffragette for one reason, because suffragism will lead to socialism, and socialism is the ideal cause. But people just can't accept that Helen Keller could have come to this uh, these radical... Uh, ideas by herself. She must have been manipulated by by people around her. And it, this continues throughout her whole life, this, this ableist uh, narrative. 
about how, well, no, Helen's a saint, so it must be the people around her, the communists, the socialists, Annie Sullivan, are manipulating her. And uh, very typical. She's very outraged in the beginning. She's a, she, she is um, very feisty, and her rhetoric is, is revolutionary, and she's outraged by, by this. And she's very funny, too. She has this incredible sense of humor. She, uh, she's befriended by Mark Twain. Mark Twain loves her sense of humor. A lot of people have, have discovered that she's, uh, her, her, her wit is very biting. And she starts to use her sense of humor to counter this ableist narrative. So she, you know, writes these essays mocking the media for for assuming that she's been manipulated by those around her. And she's always smarter than her critics. So I think a lot of this went over their heads. But it's quite fascinating to watch these these rhetorical strategies that she uses to counter the ableist narrative that that's always greeting her political uh, ideas. And she she stops. Uh, so at at one point she becomes um, very conscious of her financial limitations. She needs a job. Uh, she 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 goes on the lecture circuit and she's making quite a lot of money. She goes she goes on the vaudeville circuit for a few years to to pay the bills. And eventually she seeks stability. So she gets offered a job by the American Foundation for the Blind, a full-time job, which gives her a semblance of financial stability. She's a fundraiser for the AFB, large national organization working for the welfare of the blind community. But unfortunately, you know, she realizes that she's going to have to tone down the rhetoric, right? She's She's seeking money. She's going hat in hand to these capitalists that she's been condemning uh, a couple of years earlier. And so she stops that that revolutionary rhetoric, but she does not stop believing in socialism. She just sort of tones down her, her approach. And and this is the uh, uh, part of the narrative that's, uh, that's uh, attached to even her political side, is that after 1924, after she goes to work for the uh, American Foundation for the Blind, she becomes apolitical. Her politics have mellowed. Her her nephew gives an interview years later saying that her early socialist uh, politics are a historical relic. So it's acknowledged, you know, there's documentaries and biographies that talk about her early socialist ideas. But this all supposedly came to an end in 1924. After that, she she becomes mostly liberal in her outlook on society. But I discovered a very different story. I, I, I probed FBI files, intelligence dossiers, private archives uh, that, that actually revealed she, she moved to the left after 1924. The, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia inspires her. And she starts to take a very um, left wing, uh, much further to the left than her old socialist analysis. She starts to almost parrot the the communist uh, party line for a couple of decades. And this this is another side of her that's been swept under the rug. Even those you know that acknowledge that she was once a socialist can't accept that she 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 was actually a communist. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer one at a time, 
podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Well, and you say in your book, there's a part, one of the, one of the, Many interesting things about your book is you sort of interrogate previous biographies of her. And one of those called her socialism uh, a phase or something like that. Right. And right. you're like a phase that lasted 15 years. Like that's not. <laughs> right, right. That, yeah. I mean, her, the most, her most celebrated biographer is Joseph Lash, who writes the first major biography of Helen Keller in 1980. And he was a socialist before the war. So he's very sympathetic to her early socialist politics. But then, starting in the 30s, it's very clear that she's moved to the left. She makes no secret of her admiration for the Bolshevik Revolution. She, she, she calls Vladimir Lenin, Lenin the greatest uh, living figure, repeatedly, during her vaudeville tour. And she spends the next three decades uh, championing the Bolshevik revolution. So it's very clear that she, she has a lot of admiration for uh, communism. She, she soured on Stalin early on. She realized that he's a tyrant. So she's quite critical of Stalin, but, but still retains this admiration for Bolshevism. And yet Joseph Lash in 1980, years later, uh, he talks about how she was duped by the communists because she, uh, she started to um, embrace the anti-fascist uh, cause during the Spanish Civil War and uh, travels with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, which had been uh, formed by the Communist International. And, and so she's a, she's a very strong opponent of fascism. First, she's, she's denouncing Hitler very early on, uh, before most people knew what was happening in Germany, uh, she's warning Hitler. Uh, she sends a letter saying, "Do not, do not think your barbarities towards the Jews are unknown here." So she's an anti-fascist. She's almost the epitome of Antifa, you know, long before that became a pejorative of the far right. And then, uh, and then the Spanish Civil War happens, and she. She's very prophetic. She she speaks six languages, including German. So she's reading periodicals in Germany. She she knows a lot more about what's happening in Europe than the average American because she's reading uh, the the news in in all these various languages. And uh, she's warning Americans. She's she's criticizing the New York Times for being too soft on Hitler. So she spends the whole decade, uh, you know, as a crusader against fascism. And yet, according to her major biographer, she's been duped. Again, you know, this ableist narrative that starts in the, in the 1910s uh, is, is still there in, in 1980. Uh, so, and probably, probably today, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people that, that hear about, you know, her political crusades and figure, oh, well, she must have been, she must have been manipulated by, by these people because the, the wonderful Helen Keller could never embrace the, an ideology that goes against America. And that's what's so fascinating to me. Like when I was reading reading this book every page, I was just like, what? Like the the amount of um major civil rights figures that she's interacting with. Like you you open the book with her her thoughts about the arrest of Nelson Mandela. Like it's just 
she, I picture her as this little girl in, you know, 1900s, early 1900s. So it's, she lived for most, like up till 19, is it 68? Yeah, she died in 1968. Yeah. Like she lived through so many major political moments in history and she had a strong opinion about all of them and she wrote about it. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's out there, right? This isn't, this isn't a secret and yet most people have no idea. Or, and they certainly have no idea that she continued these political crusades after 1924. Um, so, yeah, my, my, you mentioned Nelson Mandela. I, I came across in, a, in an archive, and this has never been revealed, that, um, that in 1950, 1956, uh, Nelson Mandela and the entire uh, African National Congress uh, are arrested in a pre-dawn raid and put on trial for treason. Uh, and, and they're facing the death penalty. This is a long time before anybody's heard of Nelson Mandela, before apartheid becomes a liberal cause celebre. And uh, Hel Helen Keller had traveled to uh, South Africa. She spent two and a half months in South Africa in 1951, just three years after apartheid had been implemented. And she was appalled by what she, what she discovered. Um, now, she's from the, the South. She's in, from Alabama. And in Alabama at that time, the conditions uh, facing African-Americans were not that different than the condition facing black South Africans. I, I uh, interviewed two of Mohandas Gandhi's grandchildren who met her during that tour. And uh, one of, one of his granddaughter, Ella Gandhi, uh, ended up under house arrest years later. She, she worked for the... the um, African National Congress. She was an MP and an ally of Mandela. And I asked her, you know, why, why do you think Helen Keller was so uh, shaken by apartheid? It wasn't that much different than, than Alabama at that time. She said she thought the major difference was that in, in Alabama, a, uh, a, large white a, a large white majority was oppressing the black minority. But in South Africa, it was a tiny white minority oppressing a massive black majority. That would have been the major difference between Alabama and South Africa in uh, 1951. So then, then a few years later, the, the uh, dissidents start to start to organize against uh, apartheid. Nelson Mandela is arrested, put on trial for treason, and the civil rights activist writes to Helen Keller in 1959, asking her if she'll um, help raise money for the defense fund. They're running out of money. Uh, Mandel and the others are, are facing the death penalty. And they thought that a, you know, a, an appeal from a beloved figure like Helen Keller would, uh, might help the cause. Now, uh, the, the, this is you know, the height of the Red Scare. Uh, Helen had spoken out against McCarthy publicly spoke out against McCarthy and McCarthyism. And she, again, faced intense pressure from her employer, told her this, this is jeopardizing your reputation, uh, the, the, the cause of the, the blind community. And, and yet, when she gets this letter asking, asking uh, for her to issue an appeal for, for funds, she doesn't hesitate. She writes this very poignant letter uh, about the poison, we have to stop the poison of racism and oppression. 
So she issues this letter as well as a financial um, appeal. And, you know, this that's never been revealed. It's just one more, one more incredible story from her life that's been ignored or forgotten in favor of a more familiar narrative. It's so fascinating to me. It's so fascinating to me. Like the fa- everything in this book is, you were saying like some of these things were never revealed. Like it was in the best interest of other people to just have her be this kind of heroic person who learned how to read and that was it. Right. But it's, I love that all this stuff is coming out now, but can you talk a bit too about um, some of the more problematic, some of the more problematic views? I'm thinking specifically about eugenics. Yeah, so in, in uh, 1915, she very briefly, now this is a period where the socialists, so-called progressive figures, have embraced eugenics, the idea of selective breeding, or um, the, the, there was this uh, idea that eugenics would help curb the misery of overpopulation and poverty. This was certainly uh, Helen's uh, rationale. Uh, her friend, her, her very good friend and socialist comrade, Margaret Sanger, who we now know as, as the founder of Planned Parenthood and a celebrated figure in, in uh, feminist history, was a very ardent eugenicist. And, and so the, a baby is born in Chicago, the Bollinger baby, with very severe birth defects. And... Helen uh, weighs in. She shocks a lot of her admirers by um, the, 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 the doctor, the doctor that treated this baby decided that the, the baby was better off dying. Uh, he was a staunch eugenicist himself, and this sort of furthered his, his agenda. And Helen weighs in and says, uh, you know, a baby with these severe defects are, is, is almost certain to become a criminal. So she parrots this eugenic line and uh it's a little bit shocking considering the compassion that she always showed for the most vulnerable members of society but this is very short-lived this is the only real example and then you know two decades later she uh she reverses course she uses her her status as a as a, a disability icon to uh condemn hitler's eugenic policies so yet yeah, it, it it certainly has cast a stain on her reputation among some segments of the uh, disabled community. Well, and I think it really what I find really impressive about her is she was a woman who was consistently, like you were saying, she she knew several different languages. She was keeping up with news. Like she's someone who I picture every day was just like, what's the latest theory? What's the latest news? What's happening in every country? And so and she would change her views based on what she was reading and learning like she was a lifelong learner right and unfortunately you know she was reading uh the, these uh treatises by fellow socialists and by so-called progressive figures who for a couple of decades genuinely believed that eugenics was a uh was a progressive idea obviously the whole world was shocked by how eugenics was applied later by the Nazis. But at that time, it was still this progressive concept. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize in the context of that, that it was the left that was embracing eugenics. Now, what, one, one big difference between uh, Helen and a lot of the other people, including her mentor, Alexander Graham Bell, uh, he was a eugenicist. But a lot of these eugenicists were also racists. 
and they they uh, talked about sterilizing immigrants and uh, for forced sterilization of racialized minorities. Helen never took up that that racial eugenics. It was strictly about you know babies born with severe uh, birth defects and that sort of thing. So I, you know if the, if there's a bright side to her eugenics, to her short-lived uh, embrace of eugenics, it was that she, she was never a racist. Uh, Annie Sullivan was a racist. You know, I mean, that was fairly typical at the time. Annie Sullivan was a New Englander um, who considered herself very enlightened and, and pro-Negro and anti-South. And yet her writings are, are riddled with racism. Uh, but, but Helen, had, you know, very early on, seems to have uh, made these connections. Now, intersectionality is this catch catchphrase in academia, right? And Helen Keller was make, uh, you know, making these links between race, gender, class, and ability. Uh, most of her life, other than that, you know, tarnished uh, phase of eugenics, she, she was an incredible thinker. So, so yes, yeah, she was reading this stuff, but she also had a very sharp mind. I, I think that's a lot of people you know, credit Annie Sullivan, because how else, how, how did Helen Keller become such an accomplished figure? It must be a credit to her teacher. She was, she was a, clearly a prodigy, you know, sort of a, a once-in-a-lifetime mind. Well, and I think I read, I forget if it was on the, the back of your book or if it was one of the reviews that said, um, Helen Keller, like she's known for learning how to speak. And then your book is talking about when, what she did with her voice. And I thought that was a beautiful way to explain kind of what your book is doing. Right, right. And honestly, it's so shocking to me. So now I think to learn all this stuff about Helen Keller that is not so widely known. And you see her on quotes, inspirational quotes, um, you know, the Helen Keller Barbie doll. And she's still very much seen as this kind of like saintly person who all she ever did was be deafblind. And apart from her, uh, apart from her politics, which obviously my book focuses a lot on her, her political views, but I was really captivated by, for, by her as a person. Uh, she loved to drink, loved the beer. She loved dirty jokes. You know, Mark Twain, she talked about how Mark Twain, she was, she was drawn to Mark Twain, uh, because the profanity that came from his, uh, from his mouth, right? People talk about their friendship, but they never talk about that side of her. They don't want to be thinking of, you know, Helen, Helen uh, exchanging dirty jokes with Mark Twain and, and other people she was friends with, Harpo Marx and Dorothy Parker, and a lot of people associated with with wit. They they loved her sense of humor. Uh, you know, she she um, she went on vaudeville for a few years, and and uh, there was always a question and answer session at the end of each uh, performance. And that was often the highlight. The audience would ask her a question. So somebody would say, what do you think of capitalism? She said, it's outlived its usefulness. What did America get out of the First World War? The American Legion and a bunch of other troubles. She had the audience roaring with laughter while making these, uh, these political points. So, you know, I, I love that side of her other than the politics. Yeah. So it's really what I think is really great about your book is it's uncovering the human being, like the person, what's her personality? What were her opinions? What were her thoughts behind this oversized myth? Like I, I thought I knew who Helen Keller was, but I just kind of knew the, the mythology of a person who wasn't really a human. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I'm, you know, I'm hoping readers will 
we'll sort of leave with that that side of it. There's a lot of great progressive disability advocates today that have sort of taken up that mantle. Well, you know, she she's no she's sort of a an anachronism among some some segments of the disability community. But I I love people to, to be left with that that image of of this you know feisty woman who fought the good fight while uh, while enjoying a beer and a dirty joke instead of the six year old girl at the water pump. No, exactly. Um, do you have any? Um, actually, that's a perfect response. I was going to say, what do you hope people get out of the book? What do you think? The connection between actually here's my my final question for you if helen keller was around today what do you think she would be up to oh i think she would have you know all through her life you know when there was a when there was a conservative politician in power she she loved nothing more than to take them on she uh you know i i could just picture her on the war path against trump and 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 his ilk uh, so you know a, a disability advocate uh, criticized her a few years ago and said that Helen Keller is not radical at all. She's just another privileged uh, white woman. History telling the story of a privileged white woman. And Ted Cruz immediately tweeted his outrage at this. How dare you call the great Helen Keller uh, privileged? (laughs) You know, if Helen were around to see herself defended by a politician that stands for everything she opposed in her lifetime, I, I think one of her favorite epithets was a dung beetle. She she called this uh, right wing columnist a dung beetle, Westbrook Pegler in the fifties. <laughs> I'm sure I could just picture her calling Ted Cruz a dung beetle for defending her. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's just you mentioned that in the book too, and it's such a beautiful illustration of the misunderstanding of her entire legacy and what she was about. Right, where somebody like Ted Cruz, you know, can can summon her image uh, to serve his agenda. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a little bit troubling that, that, that you know, people, if Ted Cruz only knew that he was defending a radical socialist. Oh, exactly. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, I really, I, I'm going to press on my, on my listeners. Like, this is such an interesting and fascinating book. And just some of the sources you were mentioning, it's like you're saying you're getting into FBI files and stuff. Like, you really are unearthing some fascinating fascinating information that's never been widely known about Helen Keller. And I think that's so important. Thanks, Anne. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. So again, this book is now available wherever you like to get your books from. After the Miracle, The Political Crusades of Helen Keller by Max Wallace. And honestly, like, I think I said this in the interview, but reading this book was just blowing my mind. She's almost like a Forrest Gump level person, like every prominent figure of the 20th century, somehow she either was friends with them if they were cool or she wrote angry letters to them if they were awful. She was just all up in everything. And it's wild to me that even while she was alive and her legacy now just doesn't discounts either that this is what she was actually like, discounts that these are actually what she thought. It's such an interesting good book. I super recommend it. And this is the Vulgar History Podcast. So to keep up with me and with this podcast, I'm on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, and I'm also on TikTok at Vulgar History. And you know what? I was just thinking too that this really ties in with some other conversations we've been having on this podcast about how when history is taught to people, like those, your the understanding, like for instance, of Helen Keller, it's like this is what she was like, and this is what her story was like. So any new information that challenges your, the concept that she is this 
this little girl at the water pump who then grows up to just be this kind of like saintly advocate. It's like, well, no, here's letters and documents and proof that this is, there was more to her than just that. It's met, I think, by with some resistance from people who can't, who don't want to reinterpret what they had been taught, what they thought Helen Keller's whole story was. So that's where it turns into, as Max was saying, she was manipulated to think these things like, oh, it was just a phase. Like she couldn't possibly have, have been the person who she clearly was for 80 plus years of life. Anyway, we're getting to such interesting stuff lately on the podcast and this book ties in so tidily with it. I was really happy to be able to talk with Max. Anyway, um, yeah, what was I saying? Vulgar history. Um, we also have a Patreon if you want to listen to this podcast. Um, ad-free and early access to episodes. If you join my Patreon and for at least a dollar a month, you get the early ad-free access. And for $5 or more a month, you get the uh, bonus episodes as well. My name is Ann Foster. This is Vulgar History Podcast. We'll be back with another episode really soon. There's a lot of episodes coming up this month and next month because between the stuff I'm doing and all these books that are being published that I want to talk to the authors about, there's going to be like this week, there's going to be several more weeks with two episodes per week. So enjoy. Anyway, until next time, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.